subsection 1. Parliament or the legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of parliament or of the legislature, as the case may be, that the act or a provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in section 2 or section 7 through 15 of this charter. Now, if you check sections 2 and section 7 through 15, you find that these contain all of the substantive rights of the charter. Section 2, fundamental freedoms, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, conscience and religion, thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. And you go to uh, section 7 and following, and you have uh, life, liberty, and the security of the person, protection against search or seizure, detention or imprisonment, arrest or detention, and proceedings in criminal and penal matters. This goes on to the treatment of punishment, self-crimination, the right to an interpreter in a criminal trial, and then equality rights, equality before the law, and equal protection and benefit of the law, and affirmative action programs. The exception clause says simply that if Parliament uh, or a provincial legislature should wish to pass an act in defiance of this, they simply have to state that they're doing so. And the act is still valid. Now, it has a five-year uh, term. Uh, every five years it will be necessary to renew this abomination, but the point is that it's possible to pass such a thing uh, and to renew it if one wishes. Now, to be sure, there is uh, a certain amount of uh, political uh, cleverness related to this. Uh, very few parliaments and very few provincial legislatures will want to declare that the act that they are now passing is in defiance of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. No one is against human rights. So this is a means, in a sense, uh, of eliminating exactly what is allowed. But the confusion, of course, rests in the fact that, on the one hand, it is said that the rights and freedoms uh, declared here are transcendental. That is to say, they arise from God, who presumably would not like to be outvoted. Whereas, on the other hand, it is stated that if we want to outvote him, we are certainly privileged to do so. Uh, this is simply an indication of the fact that people are confused as to the source of human rights uh, and as to the legitimate implementation of them. And so what we want to do in these two Pascal lectures uh, is to examine the foundations of human rights and see where that foundation must rest. That's our object in these lectures. Uh, in fact, uh, you will find that I will be citing no more statutes. For those of you who have no legal background, this will come as a tremendous relief. There will be no more statutes cited. Uh, these lectures will be of a more philosophical, culture, cultural, and theological nature. Uh, why is there confusion about the legitimate source of human rights? Well, uh, human rights, uh, strictly speaking, uh, constitute a branch of international and comparative law. And therefore, to understand how people view human rights, it's necessary for us to step back and look at legal philosophy, at the state of legal philosophy. Uh, and uh, the most important thing to know about the state of legal philosophy is that at the present time, the prevailing jurisprudence, the prevailing philosophy of law, uh, is that position known as 
positivism or realism. Legal positivism or realism. These terms differ somewhat uh, in their, their exact uh, significance, uh, but we're going to use them uh, as, as synonymous terms. Uh, the term legal uh, positivism is employed generally on the European continent. Uh, the term legal uh, realism is more current in uh, the common law countries, uh, in England, the Commonwealth, uh, and the United States. Legal positivism became the prevailing legal philosophy in the 19th century. And this was due, um, in, in actuality, to the work of Jeremy Bentham. Though this was not known until quite recently. It was generally thought that the father of modern legal positivism uh, was John Austin. Actually, Austin had read a good number of Jeremy Bentham's writings, which were then in manuscript.